I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. The Supreme Court term is nearly over, and the court has displayed a surprising amount of bipartisan unanimity. On today's episode, we will try to explain that unexpected phenomenon with two of America's leading Supreme Court journalists, two great writers about the court, and two great friends of We the People. Marsha Coyle is chief Washington correspondent for the National Law Journal, where she covers the Supreme Court. We're also fortunate that she's a regular contributor to the National Constitution Center's blog, Constitution Daily. Marsha, it is wonderful to have you back on the show. Great to be with you, Jeff. And Jess Braven covers the U.S. Supreme Court for the Wall Street Journal. He previously worked at the LA Times and was United Nations correspondent and editor of the Wall Street Journal California Weekly. Jess, thank you so much for joining. Uh, I'd rather be in Philadelphia, but it's uh, it's good to join you <laughs> remotely. Well, it is wonderful to have you in any form. Um, Marsha, let's begin with this central question. Uh, many expected that this would be the term that the Roberts Court divided six to three conservatives against liberals, but that didn't turn out to be the case. We had surprising cross-partisan alignments, uh, lots of unanimity in really important cases from the cheerleader free speech case, the Affordable Care Act case, and fewer of those familiar six to three divisions than expected. Uh, You've noted uh, that SCOTUS blog has a helpful chart noting who is in the majority. And it tells us that Justice Kavanaugh was in the majority 96% of the time, followed by Justice Barrett, 95%, and Justice Gorsuch, 95%. Chief Justice Roberts is 89%. How broadly do you explain this unexpected phenomenon of cross-partisan alignment on the Roberts Court, and which justice or justices are responsible for it? That's a great question, Jeff. Uh, and I think we have to also go back to when that 6-3 majority was created with the arrival of Justice Amy Coney Barrett. And not only was there a conventional wisdom of sorts that this was going to be a, a term dominated by the conservatives, but also that the influence of Chief Justice Roberts was going to be diluted, that the the justices who were much more, I hate to say hardcore, but more strongly conservative than he was and is, uh, would really be dominant. And you would think that by looking at uh, the SCOTUS blog chart that you just saw, when you see that Roberts comes in fourth in terms of frequency in the majority. But I would say that his influence has not been diminished uh, by much. Uh, Judging on uh, some of the more recent decisions that we're seeing, the case involving uh, foster care uh, in the city of Philadelphia, uh, the Affordable Care Act, uh, I think that uh, he has been able, uh, with help from, I would think probably uh, Justice Breyer at times, and the alliance with Kavanaugh and uh, Barrett, and sometimes Gorsuch, to maintain a certain amount of influence in how narrow the decisions are going to be. And that's been the surprise towards the end of the term, that some of these cases that we thought would be blockbuster cases for the conservatives have turned out to be fairly narrow. And someone uh, who often was very closely aligned with the Chief Justice, Justice Samuel Alito, is now very much on the outs. He is, uh, in terms of frequency in the majority, uh, quite low on the list of the nine. So uh, I think the Chief Justice has been able to uh, form some alliances that have uh, kept his influence in uh, crafting narrow decisions. Now, uh, You know, to explain what I think we all wish we were flies on the walls of the justices' conferences conferences as they uh, take their initial votes and and work through who's going to write what. Uh, So I I don't really know what's going on behind the scenes. But you also might attribute 
Kavanaugh and Barrett uh, being so frequent, frequently in the majority to still having that uh, cast of being the newer justices, cautiously getting their feet wet in what to do, not wanting to move too quickly uh, and too broadly in certain areas of the law uh, until they have a, f- a firmer grasp of where the court is in these particular areas. So it may just be the confluence of a lot of different factors right now. And a lot of us think, well, maybe next term is going to be the term that really tests the Roberts Court uh, as they take on a couple of potential blockbusters uh, and very divisive in the past cases like abortion and gun rights. Jess Marsh has given a very thoughtful and clear hypothesis, uh, which we both heard, namely that Chief Justice Roberts has been able to achieve narrow opinions because of the willingness of Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett and and, and sometimes Gorsuch to go along, uh, although she suggests that may not last until next term. Uh, Do you agree or do you have a different hypothesis? Well, well, of course, I I, I join Marsh's opinion in the entirety. Uh, I'd only... Uh, I'd only add a few things that you know that we we might consider as we look at what the court actually uh, did this term. Uh, I, I have to say that it seems that a lot of the um, you know the outcomes we might uh, ascribe uh, to a degree to to Justice Breyer, the focus of so much uh, attention on his future plans. Uh, now, as the uh, senior most uh, of the liberal justices of the justices appointed by by Democrats on the court. Uh, you know, he seems to be uh, quite effectively uh, taking the on the role of uh, managing the decline of liberal influence uh, over our constitutional jurisprudence, because these cases, uh, I mean, they are, uh, I mean, the ones that we're talking about, such as the Philadelphia case uh, involving uh, the the city's um, uh, policy requiring non discrimination uh, based on on sexual orientation. Uh, remember, the it was the arch, uh, or rather, Catholic Social Services, the uh, the religious group that did not want to comply with that policy for its uh, for its um, uh, for reasons of its religious doctrine, uh, that won the case. Uh, it won the case on a contractual reason and a rather uh, creative reading of the city's uh, fair practices ordinance. Uh, but it won the case, and the case included markers showing that there will be further expansion of uh, religious exercise rights uh, at the expense of secular interests. Uh, there was a broader majority of the court that agreed to go along with that, and you saw Justice Breyer joining in most part uh, Justice Barrett's uh, concurring opinion, laying out basically the terms of surrender for the uh, more secularist uh, wing of the court that they would be uh, working through what will replace the existing doctrine that, uh, at least in theory, does not carve out religious exceptions to generally applicable laws. So I think that is in part going on, and it's a recognition of the diminished role that the liberals have on the court, uh, and it's the willingness of the conservatives, including the chief justice and the newer justices, for some reasons that Marsha mentioned perhaps, uh, being willing to 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 make that uh, that sort of uh, detente, uh, but there's no no dispute about where the court actually is headed. I mean, none of these decisions could be looked at as you know liberal victories. They've been uh, uh, you know ways that the the liberals have slowed down the rightward march, uh, but no, not at all have have changed it. Thanks so much for that, uh, Marsha. Jess raises a really interesting point by calling our attention to Justice Barrett's. Uh, concurrence in the Fulton case, which Justice Breyer joined as to all but the first paragraph. I'll I'll read Justice Barrett's uh, first paragraph. She says, in Employment Division versus Smith, she describes the case this court held a neutral, generally applicable law typically doesn't violate the free exercise clause. She says, while history looms large in this debate, I find the historical record more silent than supportive on the question whether the founding generation understood the First Amendment to require religious exemptions from generally applicable laws in at least some circumstances. In my view, the textual and structural arguments against Smith are more compelling. So interesting. Justice Barrett, who's looked hard at this question, says the original understanding is not clear, but the text and and structure do counsel perhaps against overruling Smith, but she's not willing to do that now, although she may in the future. Justice Breyer does not join that. And Jess broadly suggests that Justice Breyer has uh, brought the liberals to the center and that if he does retire, a more liberal justice might mean less 
agreement. So help us unpack Jess's really interesting point and tell us about your thoughts about the role of Justice Barrett and Justice Breyer. It was pointed out to me recently by someone that uh, the three liberals, so-called liberals on the on the court, have voted pretty much as a block in just about every case. Now they may so far they may just uh, peel off every now and then in terms of a part of an opinion, but they've they've shown remarkable cohesion this term. And uh, I think a lot of that is reflected in what Jess said. Uh, but I think Justice Breyer has, and and if he does retire, it's a shame in a sense that he's only had this term to really function as the senior justice in uh, on the left or often in dissent, because uh, I have a feeling he is in a sense growing into that role as we saw other justices do. Justice John Paul Stevens, for example, truly took took it over uh, whenever he could write a majority opinion or he had the major dissent. And I think Breyer has been doing that as well. Uh, and I think uh, because he may sense that there is a, there are a number of justices on the right who do want to go quite far in certain areas of the law, such as religion, the Fulton case, for example, uh, that he has strategically brought his colleagues on the left together with the chief justice. Uh, I think he's he, he's very interesting, and I think the chief justice has relied on S- Justice Breyer to write some of these ne- more narrow opinions. In the Affordable Care Act, for example, Justice Breyer was the one who wrote the majority opinion that that dismissed the case on the basis of standing, that the states didn't have the right to challenge uh, the provision in the Affordable Care Act that they did. Uh, In the cheerleader case, he wrote the majority opinion, uh, and that was also an assignment from the Chief Justice. And it was a case that was very much a Breyer opinion. Justice Breyer is not like Justice Scalia was a big fan of bright line rules. He sees the law, he sees uh, the cases that come before the the court as perhaps more complex and deserving of a more nuanced kind of ruling. And that's what we saw in uh, the cheerleader case. Uh, It would frustrate Justice Scalia to no end because uh, they may not provide clear guidance to the lower courts or to police or whoever has come before the court. But that is Justice Breyer's, you know, that's his philosophy, uh, that he he doesn't engage in bright line rules. Uh, he likes balancing costs and benefits uh, before he makes a decision. Uh, but I think he that the Chief Justice feels he can count on him if he assigns a majority opinion to write something that will keep a majority. And uh, that's what we saw this term. So I I, I think uh, if he had a few more terms, we'd learn a lot more about him as he really grows into the role that he now has. Justice Barrett, um, I think uh, it was pretty clear in the foster care, Philadelphia foster care argument, that she wasn't sold on overruling uh, Justice Scalia's precedent in Employment Division versus Smith. Uh, she didn't seem to have much appetite for it. And as we saw in her concurrence that uh, uh, Breyer joined in part, that uh, she, she, she's not ready, uh, not ready to take that step. And I think that's about all there is to it right now. Uh, this wasn't the right case for her Uh the right case may come sooner rather than later, but still, it, it just wasn't time. And again, that could be part of you know the newness uh, that she is still learning the ropes in terms of the court. So uh, I think I think her jurisprudence we have to wait and just really see. To, uh, she has been portrayed as someone who is very conservative. Uh, well, it hasn't. She's not been as conservative as Justice Alito this term. But again, it's it's too soon. It's just too soon to, to say. What we can say about her is uh, during oral arguments, uh, she is a very sharp questioner. She has done her homework. Uh, her questions are good. She has shown the ability to pick up on her colleagues' hypotheticals, their questions, and build on them and, and move the arguments forward. 
And she's she's a pretty uh, clear writer for the most part. Uh, she doesn't have, you know, the real style that, say, Roberts and Justice Elena Kagan have. But uh, again, Jeff, uh, I'm... I'm just going to wait and see. I think we need more data points, as they would say, before we can say what kind of jurisprudence she's going to have. Wait and see is a fine philosophy. Justice Brandeis said, my faith in time is great. And speaking of Justice Brandeis, Jess, I, I wonder if you could pick up on Marsha's really interesting suggestion that Justice Breyer came into his own as senior associate justice uh, for the liberals. She suggested uh, Justice Stevens had done the same thing. We know that Justice Ginsburg said that she felt her conception of her role on the court changed when she became senior associate justice. And in this single year, when Justice Breyer is playing that role, he wrote these really important um, opinions for the court uh, that Marsha mentioned, including the school speech case where he said so resonantly that America's public schools are the nurseries of democracy. And we know that Justice Breyer is a Tocqueville fan. He told our students that in our recent NCC class. Tocqueville talked about the jury as a gratuitous public school. And I, I, I just thought that was so uh, revelatory of, of Breyer's vision of American democracy and active liberty. So your reflections, please, Jess, on, on what we learned about Justice Breyer in his new role as senior associate justice for the majority, and then your thoughts about Justice Barrett. Oh, sure. <clears throat> um, well, with Justice Breyer, you know, uh, he has a particular interest in public schools. He's a very proud graduate of the San Francisco public schools, where his father was for many decades the general counsel for the local school board. And so this is an area that he feels uh, particular uh, uh, resonance with the role of public schools and their importance. Uh, I mean, you know, when he when so, he's he's often, or I've heard him encourage, you know, uh, uh, people he meets uh, who, who ask him, you know, what the, what they can do to help the country. He encourages them to run for school board. I mean, he's you know he's someone who who really thinks the public schools have a central mission uh, in what uh, the country became and 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 can be. Uh, and uh, and that line also was you know a, a particularly. Um, I'd say, you know, demonstrative line for, for Justice Breyer, who's not known for declarative statements and, and uh, uh, easily quotable uh, lines. I'm sure Marsha might, might agree with that when trying to, to write uh, Justice Breyer's comments at an argument or, or one of his uh, many factor balancing tests in an opinion. Uh, but uh, so, yes, I, I agree totally that Justice Breyer has been basically the understudy to Justice Ginsburg for decades. That was his role, appointed one year behind her, but always in a very seniority-oriented institution, uh, having to uh, to wait uh, until she spoke before he could say something. Now, under, of course, you know, sad circumstances, he's the senior justice in this, uh, in this role. Uh, it's one that he has seen others do before him. It's one that uh, he... Uh, is uh, extremely well-placed to do, having been on the court for so long and knowing the other members so well and having developed a relationship with the chief justice uh, where the chief knows he can trust him not to write anything that's going to uh, inflame the other side. And it's not not what he does. He's a very conciliatory uh, person who believes very much in that institution. Uh, and so, yeah, I think uh, this is uh, his moment to shine and it must be somewhat frustrating for it to come uh, at a time when uh, while he is uh, he is eighty two, he seems to be you know pretty sprightly. Uh, so there doesn't seem to be any immediate you know health reason that we're aware of that would drive him off the court. Instead, there are uh, other reasons involving the the bigger place that uh, the court inhabits in in our political uh, scheme, and that's something that he would like to not have to think about at all. Uh, he's being forced to, I guess, if he ever sees one of those billboard trucks driving around outside the court. But uh, he, you know, it's 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 a little unfortunate timing for him. But timing has not been on the liberal side uh, when it comes to the Supreme Court since uh, I'd say you know 1967. So uh, that's perhaps not a surprise. Uh, yes, I think he's grown uh, is ready for this role. The other um, justices uh, on the left on the court obviously have regard for him. Uh, I think you could see that perhaps in the relatively small number of separate opinions by Justice Sotomayor, who has herself said that she sees her role as being, you know, pointing out things the majority overlooks or doesn't give uh, proper attention to. She's, uh, along with Justice Kagan, uh, had relatively few uh, separate statements that might distract from the court's uh, efforts at unity. And that could well be ascribed to, to Justice Breyer's influence. 
Uh, when it comes to Justice Barrett, I think the first thing we have to say uh, is how uh, wrong the uh, the substance was of the Democratic strategy against her last year. I mean, they made her out to be a guided missile uh, aimed at the Affordable Care Act, someone selected specifically for the purpose of destroying President Obama's achievement uh, at the uh, you know direction of her patron, President Trump. Uh, you know, those of us who had to read her opinions and <clears throat> get a sense of her her legal career wouldn't have thought that you know regulation of the healthcare industry was the motivating uh, interest that led her to the law and a, a career as a professor and uh, and judge. Uh, and it seemed doubtful that that was the main thing on her mind when she uh, you know aspired to uh, to follow her her mentor Justice Scalia, but. Um, uh, and we saw that really to be the case when she got on the court. I mean, she had nothing uh, to say in the opinion that came down about the Affordable Care Act. She just joined the majority by Justice Breyer. Uh, this was not an interest of hers. And uh, and so we see that, the, you know, the Democrats had political reasons for perhaps choosing that issue and making these signs that they held up at the confirmation hearings and talking about people, their, their constituents who would lose all their important health care if Justice Barrett were confirmed. And that turned out to be totally, completely wrong, and probably some of the Democrats uh, knew that at the time. That's not to diminish the other uh, aspect of her jurisprudence, which she is a conservative, and she is going to be voting for the conservative outcome in many cases, such as the one we saw uh, uh, involving the uh, union access regulation in California. That was a flat-out ideological split, and she was exactly where you would expect her to be. That's where she was in some of the cases involving uh, criminal procedure earlier in the term. Six, three cases, she was exactly where you'd expect her to be, and I think you'll find those uh, you know, up and down the line as, as her career progresses. Um, so, yes, Justice Barrett uh, did not immediately move to the far right of, the, of this court, at least, which uh, Justice Thomas uh, still has a firm foothold on. But uh, she, she did not come in as a, you know, uh, acolyte of, of President Trump, didn't do anything to help his uh, uh, quixotic effort to retain power after losing the election as, as uh, Trump and some of his uh, supporters uh, hoped or expected that she would. So, yes, she's uh, being her own person, but her own person is a very conservative judge. Thank you very much for that. And thank you for noting the six to three decisions that we did see, including those involving criminal procedures, such as the life sentence for juvenile offenders. Uh, that was a six to three written by Justice Kavanaugh, uh, five to four COVID restrictions and religion and a six to three on union uh, and labor rights. Um, Marsha, I want to ask you about Justice Kavanaugh, and I wonder what you think of a really interesting Justice Breyer made during our NCC class. He said, pure partisan politics does not play a role on the Supreme Court. I've never heard justices talk about cases in partisan terms, but it's subtle and complicated because Political philosophy may play a role. And if you are uh, an Adam Smith free market person or a Maoist socialist, that might influence your view of the case. Um, but it's not pure partisan politics. Um, what does that tell us about Justice Kavanaugh's political philosophy? How would you distinguish it from, say, Justice Gorsuch and Justice Thomas? And what role has Justice Kavanaugh played on the Supreme Court. Well, okay. <laughs> uh, I think uh, he is, he can be distinguished uh, from Justice Gorsuch. Uh, I think Gorsuch has a libertarian streak that comes out every now and then in criminal cases, much as uh, it did for Justice Scalia. Also, I think Gorsuch is closer to Thomas in terms of uh, really applying an originalist approach, that is, looking at uh, what the uh, people at the time of the passage of the Constitution or a particular amendment uh, were, were thinking um, uh, of uh, in, in order to relate it to, it's what they call original public meaning, and then relating it to the case before them, the interpretation that they're, they're, they're doing. I think those two are, are, are very much... Uh, in the 
in the mold of Justice Scalia. Uh, Thomas certainly uh, is is a, a very you know by the book originalist. I think in his his approach to cases. Gorsuch, not always, but pretty close. Uh, Kavanaugh, he had uh, called himself an originalist, uh, but uh, I think you know he's he's not in the same league as those two. And uh, you know, when you talk about politics, this is so hard. I I tend to think that he is Kavanaugh is more political than other justices, and I don't mean partisan. But I think that he is more strategical than some of them. Uh, I think Justice Thomas will call a case as he sees it, regardless of what anybody thinks. And I don't think he's too interested in uh, uh, compromising much. Uh, and I think Justice Alito also is, you know, a very staunch conservative. And sometimes, you know, we'll, we'll move if he has to off of what he thinks. But I think Kavanaugh will do that. And I think that's why, at least in his first term, he was so close to Roberts in agreement. Uh, I think he studies Roberts. And uh, also, I've noticed, and I haven't counted, so I may be wrong, but I get the sense that he's writing in almost every case. Uh, it may be a concurrence in which he really doesn't say a whole lot, <laughs> but he feels he has to say something. And uh, I, I think he, he, you know, maybe he's just, I just think he's he's more political in the sense of strategic. And again, I, I think it is a little early to see where he's headed. I do think he's very conservative, uh, but uh, I, I don't think he is as, as close to Robert's uh, and we've seen them diverge, uh, especially in the COVID cases, um, the COVID religion cases. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's a little too early to, as well, to say where he's headed with this. But he's the kind of justice that I sometimes think I look at and think, well, he wants to be chief justice someday. <laughs> and uh, John Roberts has got a long, uh, a number of years ahead of him. So I don't know how, how that's going to happen, but um, he just strikes me. Maybe Jess has some thoughts too on this, but he just strikes me as more strategic, more political. Uh, I don't know that he really has the, the deafness yet that Roberts has. Um, I don't know that he has the, the kind of concern for the institution that Roberts has yet, because he hasn't been there that long. He, I think they all have a concern for the institution of the Supreme Court, but when you're chief, uh, it, it, it's like a step beyond that. So uh, uh, I don't know. One interesting dynamic I thought on the court this term was uh, the interplay between Justice Kagan and Justice Kavanaugh. Justice Kagan uh, sort of cut him down a couple times uh, with some of the comments he made uh, in, uh, there were uh, the criminal case, I think it was the Jones case, uh, in which uh, he jabbed her because she was taking a position in dissent that was opposite of what she had in a, a, an earlier case that was precedent for his majority opinion. Uh and she, you know, accused him of keeping score, and you don't do that. You you judge cases as they come before you. Uh, and I think she's done it twice now, where where she's jabbed him, and uh, and he, you know, it it was that kind of kind um, juvenile. I don't don't mean juvenile in the sense of you know really young, but it was an inartful writing by Kavanaugh that he didn't have to do what he did to get her response. And she, you know, she will respond. Uh, she doesn't have as sharp an edge often as Justice Alito had in his writing, but uh, you really do not want to mix with Justice Kagan because she is a better writer than Kavanaugh is <laughs> by some. <laughs> so he, he's got, so, so he's still, um, no, no, you know, he's, uh, I haven't, I think next term we're going to learn a lot about Kavanaugh. <laughs> I keep saying that about all of them. We're going to learn a lot more. But to me, uh, he is political in the sense of more strategical 
in terms of where he wants to be in a case and how he is perceived by others, uh, both inside the court and outside the court. Such fascinating uh, insights about Justice Kavanaugh. I love your wisdom that it's too soon to tell for many of these justices. Uh, it calls to mind, of course, the famous response of Zhou Enlai, who's supposed to have said when asked about the influence of the French Revolution, it's too early to say, but he apparently wasn't talking about the French Revolution, but the the student revolts of 1968. Uh, Jess, your, th- your thoughts about Justice Kavanaugh. Marcia said so much, and she really interestingly contrasted him with Justices Gorsuch and Thomas, who she said were uh, originalist, uh, more libertarian, and less likely to compromise um, how would you compare him to the other conservatives? Do you agree that he's more strategic or pragmatic? And how is this playing out on the court? Well, again, you know, Marcia said said uh, uh, said it all. I, I could uh, I would say this, you know, in looking uh, at the distinction between you know Kavanaugh and and, and Gorsuch uh, and where they fit into the the, the dynamics of the court. I mean, t- to me, uh, you know, Kavanaugh comes off as a sort of more touchy feely version of Alito. He's not there with a particular uh, uh, sort of method that he is trying to prove his um, scientific fealty uh, towards the way that uh, Gorsuch uh, or or Scalia uh, or Thomas uh, would do. Um, And, uh, you know, and and he seems to be more kind of uh, slightly more outcome oriented than than they would be, that if it's it's helpful to, to rely on originalist argument to get to a certain place, then that's what comes up to the fore. If uh, if it's if it's not, then there are other methods to to get where what to, to what you think is the the correct result. Uh, you know, and that's not to say that he's not uh, you know being authentic or being uh, or being duplicitous. It's just that there are different interpretive methods, and uh, you know he is not as wedded to you know, always using the same one uh, as as we would see uh, you know Thomas or or Gorsuch or, or or Scalia purport to do or Barrett for that for that reason. Um, you know the uh, the the idea though that he wants to. Uh, I, I mean, something Marcia said that's that's quite you know insightful is that is that he does feel a need to explain himself a lot. It's as if he wants to tell the losers in the cases, and each case is going to have a loser to one degree or another. Sometimes involving you know like the executions. I mean, really losing uh, that uh, that he understands where they're coming from and he respects where they're at, and it's you know uh, it, it you know his his ruling against them isn't uh, something intended to show uh, disrespect or, or lack of regard for their interests. You know, he's made those comments about, um, you know, uh, uh, in, in a, about um, uh, gays and lesbians when it came to the, uh, the case last year, the Bostock case involving uh, uh, the uh, uh, Civil Rights Act and, and non-discrimination protections f- uh, for employees. Uh, you know, he you know he he feels a need to sort of explain that he understands where all the parties are coming from, uh, and uh, perhaps that's an effort to sh- you know to 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 in- improve the legitimacy of the court to show that all sides are being considered fairly, even those that lose. Uh, but it also seems to be that he wants he wants the public to know that too that he that that he understands you know where the where all the parties are. But when it comes down to the bottom line, uh, he's lining up with the, the you know conservative outcome in in all these cases, even uh, in opposition to uh, to Gorsuch, as we saw um, last year in that Bostock case. Um, uh, a difference was in the Affordable Care Act case this year, where I think uh, Gorsuch was in the uh, uh, minority with uh, Justice Alito, uh, where they said there was standing to uh, for this. Uh, Texas and other states to to attack the act. Uh, in that case, by the way, I just want to point out, if it's not on the agenda, is the very interesting concurrence by Justice Thomas, where Justice Thomas, uh, who joined Breyer's opinion in full, added a concurring opinion, which did something that uh, that that explained, you know, why he was voting to uphold the Affordable Care Act after voting twice before to strike it down. And in some ways, it's similar to the position that uh, Justice Kagan discussed. Uh, in that uh, juvenile, um, rather in that uh, 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 unanimous jury case that uh, that Marsha mentioned, you know, why is she voting now for uh, extending this rule of uh, non-unanimous juries uh, to uh, when she voted to uphold a precedent that had previously authorized non-unanimous juries? Same thing here with Clarence Thomas. He wrote that 
He thought the earlier decisions the court made were wrong, but given where the state of the law is now and the specific legal issue before the court, there was no standing for the state of Texas and other challengers to come up against uh, the Affordable Care Act. So it was uh, an interesting uh, 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 concurrence to read and to see Justice Thomas departing from what he thought you know, would be the ultimate correct result, getting rid of the Affordable Care Act, but accepting that in the framework of the court's jurisprudence, this particular legal claim had to fail. Many thanks for that. It's so illuminating to hear you both discuss the individual justices that I'm going to ask Marsha about Justice Alito, who just just mentioned. Uh, Justice Alito, in November of this term, gave a much-remarked speech at the Federalist Society lamenting that the First Amendment rights to free exercise of religion and the Second Amendment right to bear arms were becoming second-class liberties. Uh, he was in relatively lonely dissent in several cases this year, including Nestle v. Doe, the alien tort statute case where he was the only dissenter and, and he was one of two in the um, Affordable Care Act case. Um, Marsha, what can you tell our listeners about the constitutional philosophy of Justice Alito? Very conservative. <laughs> uh, yes, this was not a great term for Justice Alito. I think I even wrote about that for the Constitution Center's blog. Um, uh, he, uh, <laughs> he, he, I think, as I said earlier, when we were talking about, uh, Justice Kavanaugh, uh, he is very, uh, he has, he has a very definite judicial philosophy and it's, it's quite conservative. Uh, he, uh, the religion speech that he gave to the Federalist Society was not the first time I, I heard him give something like that, uh, very, Early in his time on uh, the Supreme Court, he also had introductory remarks at uh, the Federalist Society and spoke as well about religion. Um, this is, <laughs> and then if you recall, it wasn't too long ago when Bill Barr was Attorney General that he gave a very similar speech at the Notre Dame Law School about how. Uh, secular society was uh, basically pushing religion out of the United States of America. And uh, I sort of, I mean, I, I think if you, re if you read, you know, the opinions that were in the COVID religion cases earlier in the term, even though uh, they were unsigned uh, opinions uh, with a couple of exceptions when there were dissents and, uh, you, you know that they they really do believe uh, the conservatives and particularly Justice Alito believes that the religion clauses uh, really do take precedence over other constitutional rights. Uh, and I think uh, we, we've been seeing how religion clause challenges are prevailing. I think one of my colleagues wrote, nearly always prevail. Uh, so um, I think that's one area that he just he feels extremely strongly about, and uh, we're I think we're going to see more of that, not only from him but from Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and I think Barrett as well. Despite what she wrote uh, in the Fulton case, uh, that's an area of the Constitution that they have very strong feelings about. Um, I think sometimes, Jeff, uh, it's the nature of the cases that come before the court uh, that it could be a bad term for Justice Alito this term, but next term could be a great term. Uh, and I think Justice Scalia once said the same thing to me, uh, that there was a term when he actually thought about uh, retiring because it was such a bad term. And then things turned around, the, the, the membership of the court changed, and suddenly he was on top again. <laughs> so, uh, so it could well be just the nature of the cases. Uh, I wish I had I had more in-depth to say about Justice Alito. I never found him to be uh, one of the more complicated justices when it came to judicial philosophy. Uh, uh, he has joined opinions that I sometimes thought uh, – we're, we're not in line with with what he thought. But he, you know, when he does that, he usually writes separately to explain uh, his feelings. Um, but, uh, you know, he, he has an almost emotional response to religion cases as well as speech cases involving uh, 
hatred speech, hate, hated speech, speech that we all, the general public, would think is horrible speech. Uh, for example, uh, I remember um, how upset he was with the court's ruling involving the Westboro Baptist group that would um, protest outside the funerals for military service members. And uh, the court uh, upheld their right to do that. But, oh, he thought that was terrible. And also... Um, when someone uh, would wear a medal uh, that they had not earned. And uh, I mean, there were other examples where he, so he has certain areas of the law that he feels very, very strongly about. And it's almost like an emotional response to it. Uh, otherwise, you know, he, he is just conservative and his approach to criminal justice is very conservative, very um, pro-government, pro-prosecution. Uh, so, um, you know, uh, he just had a bad term. We'll see if next term is better. Maybe Jeff has, maybe Jeff has something more in depth about Justice Alito than I, I can cough up here. That was great. Your, um, observation that Justice Alito's responses sometimes seem emotional is powerful. I think of Justice Holmes's observation about the major premise of Justice Peckham's jurisprudence, which he said was, God damn it. (laughs) 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 Justice Holmes also called Justice McReynolds a naturmensch, a a Nietzschean nature man who responded to things purely emotionally. So um, there there are precedents for this. Um, Jess, further thoughts about Justice Alito, and because you're just, both of you are shining such such bright light on on all the justices. I'll I'll ask you to turn to Justice Kagan. What were your favorite moments in a term where she had some real zingers? She she engaged and rebuked Justice Kavanaugh, as as Marcia mentioned, and um, what role is she playing on the court? Well, just certainly just a just a, uh, a compliment what what Marshall already said about Justice Alito. I mean, I think we all think of him as the most Peckhamian member of the court uh, uh, today. Uh, you know, making sure that that tradition uh, continues. Uh, you know, a little more seriously, you know, some people think of him as a very dour, sour person from his facial expressions during argument or the way he uh, shakes his head at State of the Union addresses and some of the sarcastic things he says. I just want to say that you know, in, in person. And he's 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 you know he's he's not at all an, an arrogant or or, or or difficult figure and uh, quite approachable and I remember having a conversation about with him about you know him him repairing a broken down Volkswagen when he was in college and things and he's you know he's so he you know he's he's very down to earth in person and uh, and and his his public reputation of him as just the Grinch I think is is a bit. Uh, overblown, and and he's also you know someone who you know, he, he's not a, he's not aloof, uh, and uh, is is I think you know at least one to one happy to engage in what he thinks and and why. Uh, so uh, I, I wouldn't want him to be you know seen as 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 uh, an, an unpleasant person, even though he does seem to play the role of of sore winner uh, quite uh, often on the court. I mean, even when he is writing uh, the concurrence in the Fulton case, the Philadelphia case. I mean, he's still winning. He's still on the winning side. He just didn't win by enough this term as he would have preferred to. Uh, and uh, we've seen that with some other uh, of the, uh, the the court's conservative decisions. Uh, his uh, dissent from the, um, from the Obamacare case, uh, dismissing standing, uh, this term uh, received praise from uh, Professor Lawrence Tribe of Harvard, who you know reluctant said he's you know he, he didn't think he often agrees with with Justice Alito, but his assessment of the standing rules he thought was spot on. So you know he's he's not purely uh, an you know an emotional uh, figure running uh, you know from uh, seeing the law through the lens of his own passions. He's also someone where in addition to his uh, concerns about uh, offensive speech. And uh, uh, and uh, uh, and the the you know the the stolen valor case, the false metal case. I'd also say he's probably the member of the court uh, most attuned to animal welfare. Uh, he uh, dissented from a case that uh, that uh, threw out a, a federal statute that that criminalized uh, crush videos of of small animals. And for many years, he'd bring his dog Zeus. Uh, to court, uh, he once said at a at a conference that uh, you know uh, he he was uh, 
uh, you know, late at night, unable to, to to make a decision, he'd turn to Zeus for advice, and and the answer would come uh, from Mount Olympus uh, through his dog. So, uh, you know, oh. he, he you know he he has his own his own uh, approach. But in terms, uh, but if he had a you know with a with a broad brush, I mean, I think he more than anyone in that court uh, would exemplify what what President Nixon thought of as a as a law and order uh, uh, judge or a strict constructionist or some, you know a no nonsense you know kind of judge who just you know, you know, rules the way the the silent majority would rule, and 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 that seems to be, if you look at the outcomes of Alito decisions, you know, where where he's going. Uh, yet, as with all of them, there can be exceptions. Uh, I think back a, a term or two to the the what they call the the Peace Cross case in Bladensburg, Maryland, where it was another religion case, but he wrote uh, uh, a a much more moderate opinion than you might expect that drew in. Uh, votes from uh, the court's liberals as well, at least some of them, uh, uh, which was you know much more uh, ecumenical in its approach than than uh, and respectful of the views of people who did not want to see a gigantic cross on public land maintained with taxpayer funds. So uh, you know he also has, I guess, a couple you know surprises now and then. But yes, at the moment he is the uh, I think most. Um, vociferous exponent of 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 conservatism uh big c small c uh, on this court very rarely will he reach an outcome that's not consistent with a conservative agenda uh and uh you will see uh you know gorsuch uh kavanaugh uh, and even thomas from time to time uh, not uh ending ending up there uh, as far as uh, as justice kagan goes uh, marsha points out she is the, the really i think you know the most sparkling writer on this court the one who has uh, the, the, there's the most incentive to, to read her opinions all the way through because you never know what uh, what uh, unanticipated smile you'll you'll find because of her her, her, her great uh, her great uh, sense of, of the written word. Um, she's an interesting person to watch because uh, although she's you know the the most junior of the liberal justices uh, because of her uh, both uh, you know rhetorical skill. Uh, and her kind of uh, diplomatic—I don't know if that's the word—crafty personality, whatever you, you, however you might you might uh, frame it, you know, ability to to uh, to to sense the room and 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 play it for for as most as she can. The, the one who's you know most suited in some ways to uh, uh, you know give the the left its best shot. On this court, and I think that uh, as the next term comes and the terms that come, uh, if the court's composition remains similar to what it is now, she's going to face a choice: is she going to be uh, someone who tries to find some kind of uh, common ground and perhaps with a chief and someone else, you know, might settle for a quarter loaf or eighth of a loaf instead of losing everything, or does she go into just full out uh, great dissenter mode and feel that there's no there's uh, there's nothing to do to add broader legitimacy to a direction of the law that she thinks is is misguided, and instead just brings you know a full on uh, 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 you know, uh, Jeremiah type uh, dissenting role, which I think for those of us who are, who are writing about the court, hope she does because that would generate a lot of great copy to see what she has to say uh, as a complete uh, loser rather than what she would say as someone who is engaged in the court's project, even as she is trying to to moderate it to a degree. So I think that's that's her choice uh, going forward, and that may only become clear when we see. Uh, if Justice Breyer retires uh, at some point, who his successor is, and what uh, Justice Sotomayor and 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 the future uh, justice want to do, given their very diminished role in deciding uh, the direction of American law. Well, uh, we have two justices to pair together uh, to get through most of the court before we turn finally in our final round to, to Chief Justice Roberts, and they are Justices Sotomayor and Justice Thomas. Uh, Justice Thomas, uh, we heard quite a bit of in the new oral argument by telephone format. Justice Sotomayor had some powerful separate opinions. Marsha, what can you tell us about Justices Sotomayor and Thomas? Justice Sotomayor, I think, has... Um carved a, a niche for herself on the court. Uh, I'm reminded of a book by the late uh, Professor Bernard Schwartz, who wrote about the court. Uh, and I think it was shortly after 
the uh, the the court no longer had Brennan, uh, Marshall, and Blackman on the court. And at the end of his book, um, he wrote a line that has stayed with me for many many years, in which he said, "No one thunders, no one roars." And then we went through, you know, the years with the Rehnquist court, which by and large was a very kind of technocratic court. Uh, and it's it had been that way. No one was thundering. No one was really roaring. Uh, certainly Justice Ginsburg in her area of the law, you know, spoke strongly. And not, not just in her area of the law. But in terms of thundering and roaring, uh, you just haven't heard the voices like you heard with Brennan and Marshall in their opinions. Well, I think Justice Sotomayor is coming close uh, and feels uh, a real need to call out the court uh, when it doesn't address, uh, in in their opinions, issues that uh, are context for uh, opinions, context for the issues that come before the court. And I'm thinking, first of all, uh, the case Utah versus Strife, which was several terms ago. And it involved um, a Fourth Amendment issue, a search of somebody who left the house, and there didn't seem to be any real cause to 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 do this search. And she, ta- other than the fact that you know this was someone who who well, there the police had been watching his house, but really the fact that this one person left the house, there there was no real reason to search him. Uh, strong reason to search him. And she wrote uh, in her dissent all about um, what we were, the nation was experiencing at the time, how young black men who dressed in a certain way, um, uh, you know, were, were being stopped by police, how, um, you know, there is this sort of burden that people of color bear in interaction with law enforcement. And she quoted from recent books that had been written about this. And it was a really very powerful opinion that she wrote. And then um, in uh, sort of an, the unlikely case of Terry versus United States, this term, which had to do with whether low-level crack dealers qualified for reduced sentences under Congress's newly enacted First Step Act. Uh, the court was interpreting the statute to see if they 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 did qual- if they were eligible, and she agreed with the court that they weren't eligible on a straight re- you know reading of the statute. It just wasn't so, but she got upset because Justice Thomas, who wrote the opinion for the court, uh, in a, I think a footnote, had described the history of the. Uh, law before the First Step Act that created this huge disparity in sentencing between um, uh, crack and cocaine powder offenses. Uh, Whites were more likely to be sentenced under one, blacks under the other, and it was a hundred to one disparity with blacks really, uh, black defendants really getting the the terrible sentences. And Congress tried to, to change that. Well, Thomas, in his opinion, um, wrote about how uh, the black community and black leaders in Congress had supported uh, that old law because they were concerned about violence in their community. Blacks were often the victims of violence. And that's where he left it. And then she wrote uh, in a footnote as well that, that she just couldn't let that go because that was not a complete history because they did come to oppose that old law when they saw the effect of the sentences on the black community and black persons. And she really called him out. And then she gave the full history of it. And she cited works by um, uh, James Foreman, who won the Pulitzer Prize for uh, his book, uh, you know, uh, Locked Up, and uh, some other works by a law professor uh, who, who who gave the full history and impact of that original law. So um, I think she she very much feels that that she has to do this. Uh, she is a person of color on the bench, and uh, she's she's going to correct it whether it comes from another person of color or a white justice. Um, and uh, we've seen it as well in some of her dissents from denials of review in prison cases, uh, prison conditions cases, uh, and other sentencing cases, where she feels 
that if there is injustice, she has to call it out. Uh, even if she, you know, is as she was in Terry, agreed with the court uh, that um, those low-level crack dealers could not get reduced sentences even while drug kingpins could, uh, that she has that responsibility. So I think... I think that's very much uh, her role, and I think we're going to continue to see her do that as long as she feels she has to. Uh, she does not get uh, many major opinions to write from uh, uh, either a sign from uh, Justice uh, Chief Justice Roberts or from uh, Justice Breyer if he's the you know uh, senior justice in dissent, um, because uh, she is probably the most liberal of the three liberals on the bench. And uh, she may not uh, she may not be able to craft the kind of opinion that w- would ensure a majority like Breyer or Kagan could do if um, Roberts you know has to sign an opinion. So I think that's that's very interesting uh, about her. Thank you so much for that. Um, uh, Jess, I think I'll ask you to tell us about Justice Thomas. Sure, and and again, I do want to also just uh, say that 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 Marcia's spot on about Justice Sotomayor and the role that she sees, and 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 just a little comment there. You know, we we sometimes hear uh, complaints or we hear conservative senators say that you know the judges that they appoint they rule not based on the outcome they want, but on the law, and the liberal judges only you know they just. Uh, uh, purely make it up and follow their own outcome-based preferences in, in these cases. And that's the difference between their judges and, and the, the Democratic appointee judges. Uh, uh, just as that, that the, uh, the, the Terry case that, that uh, Marsha mentioned and, and many other cases, uh, Sotomayor uh, puts the, the lie to that, at least as a categorical criticism, because she is saying very clearly, I wish the outcome was different, but the law requires me to keep this guy in jail. And she has said that in a number of, of statements she's issued from uh, the uh, you know, orders list where she says, you know, uh, we can't take this case. The law isn't right to take this case. But the issue that it raises is worth re- reviewing at some point in the future. Now, looking at Justice Thomas, you know, after uh, after the confirmation of Justice Barrett, a uh, conservative uh, pundit said, hooray, we've gone from the uh, 5-4 Roberts court to the 6-3 Clarence Thomas court. Uh, and that certainly uh, is the hope uh, of many, many uh, uh, people on the right with the new composition of the Supreme Court. Uh, but Justice Thomas is not someone who is a team player and, uh, and not, and I don't say that because he's a disagreeable person. Of course, he's a very agreeable person. But when it comes to his view of the law, as you suggested, he's not uh, someone who is there to compromise, who's willing to uh, step away from what he thinks is the, the right interpretation of the law in order to build a consensus and get a winning coalition. Uh, he is somebody who is who sees his role, uh, much as as as, as uh, Justice Sotomayor sees it uh, from a, another angle, as being there to point out the right result, being there to uh, point out what everyone else uh, may have been overlooking, and so uh, we've you know we we see him often even when he joins an outcome uh, in a case not joining the uh, majority or plurality opinion, but concurring separately to explain his own reasons for getting somewhere. Uh, to, to get a taste, though, of, you know, the, you know, the, the, you know the, the unadulterated Clarence Thomas, I think you have to look at some of his, his solo opinions where he reaches to issues that, you know, may not have come up, like his criticism of the Times versus Sullivan case that set the modern standard for, for press freedom in the United States. He thinks it was wrong. Uh, and he says uh, he suggested that it should be overruled. Uh, he said, uh, you know, to get a sense of, of pure Clarence Thomas, his concurrence in the cheerleader case, uh, the Mahanoy uh, school district case, where he goes into the way that children were disciplined in the 18th and 19th centuries and holds that out as the standard today for the power of the school. And he said that, uh, you know, uh, he cited a case from from Vermont in the 19th century where a a pupil was disciplined for disrespectfully referring to the schoolmaster as being old. And if that was acceptable to the Vermont Supreme Court, you know, in the 1850s, surely 
uh, today. Uh, disrespect to a cheerleading coach in rural Pennsylvania should be uh, punishable by the same terms. So uh, that's that's Clarence Thomas in his element, and uh, it doesn't seem to be changing. It's why his joining the Affordable Care Act decision was uh, of particular note. But I don't think we're going to see Clarence Thomas uh, bending his views in order to build a working majority on the Supreme Court. I think we will see something that we have seen really throughout the conservative era on this court, which has lasted now you know half a century, uh, in which the conservatives often win, but they don't agree why, and that we will see uh, cases where uh, Clarence Thomas is is joining an, an outcome in a case, uh, but not agreeing with perhaps a more measured majority opinion written by the Chief Justice or or, or a Justice uh, Barrett uh, going forward. We'll see uh, again the, uh, the 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 look to the past that Justice Thomas loves to give us. Thank you so much for that. Well, it's time for closing thoughts in this absolutely riveting discussion, uh, which I'm learning so much from, and I know we, the people listeners, are as well. Uh, in just a few sentences, Marsha, please share your thoughts about whether this new unanimity, new new comedy on the Roberts Court uh, will last, uh, or whether next term, which will bring us cases involving gun rights and abortion, we're likely to see a very different court than we've seen this term. Well, I always hate to make predictions, Jeff, about the Supreme Court because I'm often wrong. Uh, but I I have a feeling uh, that next term may be different uh, because uh, you have uh, Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett with uh, more experience under their belts. Uh, I think the nature of the cases, as you mentioned, not only abortion, gun rights, but I'm will predict that the court's going to take an affirmative action case involving Harvard's admissions policies. And once you have a trifecta like that, uh, I think it's it's going to be a different kind of a term. Uh, it's, it's true, I think, as Jess pointed out, that uh, there are a lot of differences within the conservative wing of the court uh, more so than I think in the on the liberal within the liberal wing, and that may continue to play out in terms of how far and how fast the court is willing to go. But I think we will learn a lot more about the newer justices next term. Jess, last word to you: Will we see more comedy next term than this term, or not? Comedy tonight? Uh, I don't know. I, I think. <laughs> I think. Uh, I, I think the cases, you know, some of them are, are going to have a much, uh, you know, th- there'll be less room to find middle ground. Uh, it also will come against the backdrop of a midterm uh, congressional election where control of the Senate will be uh, important for the, the future of the, of the Supreme Court. Uh, I, I think we'll, we'll see, we'll see uh, some, some sharper divisions next term because of the nature of the cases, particularly as, as Marcia said, and you said the gun case and the abortion case and the possibility that we'll also have an affirmative action case. Um, but before we leave the current term, I just wanted to look back at one other aspect, which is what's often called the shadow docket, which is the decisions the court makes in cases that are not argued but reach them on an emergency basis, uh, only on briefing and sometimes only partial Briefing And in those cases where we saw decisions on uh, last-minute election matters and many decisions on the uh, uh, COVID-19 public health orders that were issued by uh, different uh, states and, and public health officials, there we saw a much sharper division in the court than we did in the argued cases that led to these uh, opinions that we've been discussing today. Uh, and that might be what you might uh, see as like the, the initial reactions that the justices have to issues that come before them. And they are far less finessed than than what we saw in these in these argued cases, and they made some significant law there, particularly uh, in the religion area, where we saw uh, after the, the 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 passing of Justice Ginsburg uh, the, and the arrival of Justice Barrett uh, a, a real switch uh, in the majority that went to a five four majority, uh, essentially upholding the most expansive uh, exceptions for religious uh, exercise to public health orders that we had uh, seen 
uh, a real shift in the court, and in fact, the laying out in a per curiam opinion of a test about when a public health order that uh, burdens religion can stand. And it was a test extraordinarily deferential to religion and quite uh, dismissive of the interests of public health authorities or their expertise in making those judgments. So I think that we uh, uh, we should keep in mind that the court has made some uh, important uh, changes in the law through this other method, and uh, we'll have to see if uh, if the the shadow docket uh, and this uh, area of the court's jurisprudence uh, perhaps recedes with the uh, uh, passing of the uh, last election and the uh, and the hopeful uh, end of the pandemic, uh, or, or whether it, it becomes an area where we'll we'll start uh, seeing even more uh, uh, developments in the future. Thank you so very much, Marsha Coyle and Jess Braven, for uh, deep, insightful, subtle, and completely illuminating discussion of the justices of the Roberts Court and the future of the Roberts Court. Uh, thanks, Jess, for your great Stephen Sondheim pun. You've both given us something erratic, something dramatic, something for everyone, a comedy tonight. Uh, we've had comedy today with both of you uh, in the highest traditions of We the People. I'm so grateful to both of you, and we'll look forward to reconvening uh, very soon. Uh, Marsha Coyle, Jess Braven, thank you so much for a wonderful discussion. Thanks, Jess. It's been a pleasure. This was great. Thank you for having me, Jeff. Today's show was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Mac Taylor and Lana Ulrich. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We The People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone, anywhere, who's hungry for a weekly dose of constitutional learning, illumination, and debate. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, the passion, the engagement of people from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. You can support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount, even a dollar, to support our work and signal your endorsement for this crucially important mission. And you can do that at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.